It was so nearly lost now, as the Christchurch Anglican Cathedral is being rebuilt. Historian Edmund Bowen is releasing a history of the distinctive Gothic building. He reveals it was controversial even before work started on designing it, let alone building it. From the laying of the foundations to the official opening took 40 years. That was after squabbles over pretty much every aspect of its construction, not to mention huge problems raising the money needed to build it in the city centre. In Heart of the City, the story of Christchurch's controversial cathedral, Edmund is critical of moves to demolish the badly damaged cathedral after the Canterbury earthquakes to replace it with a modern church, and he very much looks forward to seeing the cathedral restored to its former glory after a lengthy and pricey rebuild. But we begin the interview looking back to the 1860s, when there was controversy over where the cathedral should go. Its design, whether it should be in stone or timber, even if there should be a cathedral built at all. Edmund, you've got a beautiful summary of your story early on. The cathedral has perhaps been Christchurch's most controversial building. Ever since the arrival of the first four ships and the almost immediate collapse of the Canterbury Association's impossible dreams. Now, we know about the recent, more recent controversy over whether the cathedral be saved or destroyed, which we'll come back to. But why was it so controversial so early on, before even, you know, a brick was laid? Oh, yes. Well, uh, what became a sort of a colonial joke about Canterbury and Christchurch, right from 1850 and 1851, was was how argumentative everybody was. And so just about everything that's happened in Christchurch ever since uh, has uh, degenerated into a tremendous civic conflict with letters to the paper and, and all that kind of thing. And it's happened consistently over all manner of things, of course, um, and right from the the, the very beginning, um, the other settlements sort of looked at Christchurch and Canterbury and asked themselves, why are these people so argumentative? And I'm not quite sure who it was, but it was one of the leaders of the Nelson settlement. It, it, it might have been Alfred Domet. Um, who decided it was probably because of the Nor'wester making people scratchy. Oh, the the fawn winds. Yes. <laughs> and um, but the the point was that the early settlers of Christchurch and Canterbury generally uh, contained some very very strong-minded characters. And I'd even go so far as to say that an awful lot of them were fairly dictatorial and very, very entrenched in their particular uh, ideas about just about everything. And so there was conflict. And the problem with the Canterbury Association, um, and I start with the reasons for it being formed in 1848, uh, was this idealistic thing of uh, Edward Gibbon Wakefield 
and then John Robert Godley, uh, of having this cross-section of British society, what they imagined British society was, uh, and transforming it into, or keeping it as it was, but transferring it um, to the other side of the world uh, so that the ideal Anglican community would um, be safe from democratic ideas and industrialization and all that kind of thing. But, of course, what they hadn't reckoned on were the conditions that these settlers were going to find when they arrived. So, as I think I make clear... um, More or less from the outset, uh, the thing collapsed in a welter of incompetent organization, uh, personal disputes, political views. For example, George Gray, the governor then, he was determined to actually, that very soon he would gain control of Canterbury because the whole idea of the Canterbury Association was flawed. And because Gray um, was a very radical thinker in religion and politics and so on, um, he was able to... Well, he was in the process of writing the uh, New Zealand Anglican Constitution, which is a thing that has been largely overlooked or or ignored. So um, with characters like James Edward Fitzgerald and Henry Sewell, uh, conflict was just part of their world. Even so, you make the point that there was conflict over whether there should even be a cathedral because some of the um, evangelicals just didn't like the idea of cathedrals, oh, yes. right? And if there was going to be one, should it be built in the in the already named Cathedral Square? You'd think so, but there are other areas. And then once they decided, yeah, we, we're going to build it, then it was all about style and stone or timber. I mean, every single step of oh, the yes. way, there was contention. Absolutely every stage created a tremendous local lot of um, rows, arguments of every kind, and um, people took umbrage very easily. Uh, But you see, the news got back to England constantly. Uh, Fitzgerald made sure of that with his Littleton Times, and his initial editing of the Littleton Times and the first few editions for the first few years he wrote himself, uh, they were very, very uh, patronising of the rest of New Zealand. And so this built up um, uh, all resentment in Wellington and Auckland and Nelson in particular, and this was absolutely 
crucial throughout the next 20 years of, the, of New Zealand's development and politics. Uh, and, of course, after each of these rows was settled more or less, you get conflicts of, of personalities. And, of course, it was a period, uh, I mean, the 19th century through to the 1950s and 60s, I mean, uh, throughout my youth and so on, sectarianism was a major feature of New Zealand life. And and all these things sort of centred on the cathedral. There was a lot of fundraising. So you say that at 20th of December 1862, uh, yeah. the commission involved with this, after some pretty feisty public debates, started asking for money. And it was an awful lot of money that they needed. Did money come flying in? Because they were they were arguing that this would be a place, not, not simply a cathedral for Anglicans, but very much, and this is what it became really, you know, a, oh, yes. a, a, a core place for Cantabrians to come. Yeah, this was very much the case. And while Bishop Harper, the first bishop, who insisted on having a stone cathedral... Uh, while his ideal was to create a building that would astonish the whole colony um, from north to south and that everyone would wonder at Christchurch's wonderful cathedral. But the second bishop, Churchill Julius, who was, I think, one of the most extraordinary um, Ecclesiastics that we've had in Christchurch, uh, he brought a new emphasis, which was this idea of a civic use for the cathedral, a, a central meeting place to celebrate anything and everything, whether and to welcome people, whether they were Anglicans or Baptists or even horror, horror, uh, Catholics. Uh, and Julius, in particular, um, was interested in the, work, the condition of the working class. And he was a sort of perfect... He arrived at the same time as Richard Seddon and all his reformers and the early Liberal Party uh, were coming into influence and power. And, of course, Julius had to rely on the, he thought, on the wealthy Canterbury Anglican elite, uh, who, of course, were absolutely horrified when, in the first day he was here, he announced that he was a Christian socialist. And he basically supported all these new uh, ideas like breaking up the bigger states, and, and that created further chaos for years. And there's, I, I don't think there's any doubt that 
help delay the completion of the building till 1904. Let's talk about Benjamin Mountfort. Uh, you describe him as the cathedral's creator and champion, also associated with, of course, the beautiful Christchurch Arts Centre and Canterbury Museum and the Provincial Chambers. So what did he bring to... He wasn't the original one chosen for the design. What did he bring oh, to Oh, no, this? no, he wasn't the original one because, you see, he'd arrived on the, in the first four ships... Uh, along with Fitzgerald and, and, and several of the others uh, who became leading figures. And he built a, ch a wooden church in Littleton, but because nobody understood the, the um, local materials and the, the local timber and so on, uh, it was built with unseasoned wood and it it sort of fell apart and had to be pulled down a few years later. And for many years, Bishop Harper and Dean Jacobs never would forgive Mountford. So they... This was a, a, a big row that went on, of course, for a year or two or more, uh, they thought that he was an uneducated, um, ignorant person about things, and they wanted an English, Gilbert Scott, in fact, to send out either one of his sons or one of his pupils, one of his other pupils. Mountford had been a pupil. So that wasn't sort of settled um, for years until poor Speechley came out here and they had this extraordinary laying of the foundation stone in the square. In the pouring rain? Yes, it's a wonderful <laughs> photo, <laughs> isn't, isn't it? it? All umbrellas. Yes. yes, yes, hundreds of umbrellas. And they, they had this huge um, procession through the rain which must have involved practically everybody in, 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 in the town. And then they ran out of money and nothing happened for years. Um, and I love your account... Big, so, sorry, Edmund. And I love your the, account of... I love your account in 1872 of, um, of Anthony Trollope's description of oh, this yes. woeful hole in the ground, that this is some years later, right? That's right, yes, that's, that, that's marvellous. I mean, the, uh, there couldn't have been anybody better than Trollope <laughs> to come to New Zealand and and comment on all this, because, of course, um, you, you know, his, his novels about deans and bishops and their wives and so on um, were tremendously popular and, and still are. And there you've got this sort of strange situation here where you've got a buried line of stone and nothing else, just a hole and a, an abandoned foundation. And, of course, that eventually got sorted when... Speechly 
the original uh, uh, architect who was to supervise it um, went off to Adelaide and ultimately Harper and Jacobs had to be satisfied with with Mountford, who by that time was regarded throughout New Zealand as the outstanding architect of his time. How, how, how many modifications did he make to Scott's uh, original he, designs? He did make modifications. Ian Lockhead has described those splendidly in his books. Um, and some of the changes that Mountford made, particularly with the tower and the spire, uh, Gilbert Scott himself thought they were perhaps just a little too um, much, but that's what happened, you know, that they happened. Well, Mount Fincer, one of his arguments, wasn't it, that you make in the book, was he was conscious, you say, of the um, impressive effect a tower would have in Christchurch's featureless landscape. So he was yes. kind of beefing it up, wasn't he? Well, yes. He, he was wanting to make it look more interesting than the the rather stark original of um, Gilbert Scott's design. And there's no doubt about it. I mean, it was the most obvious building in Christchurch for years. And, uh, you know, you could... If you stood at the at the bottom of Colombo Street uh, in modern times and looked north, there was the cathedral spire, clear and able to be seen absolutely everywhere. Such a slow, slow process. You write that in 1899, so this is what, about 20 years since Trollope was writing so mournfully of the hole in the ground. You say the the building was unfinished. It had a strangely truncated appearance, but it was still an unrivaled landmark. So not quite to 1900 yet. Just how complete was it? Uh, well, they started... Once it was decided um, that Mountford should take over, they embarked on a series of um, fundraising and so they gradually were able to start building and then extend it. But until 1904, it wasn't complete. Uh, As you can see from some of the photographs, uh, it looked rather odd for you know for twenty years or so and um un- until uh, Julius finally managed to uh, get it paid for and and completed and he um one of the things that was noted in Christchurch in the early 1900s was that 
the Catholic Irish mainly, uh, who'd been given a very swampy area at the bottom of Barbados Street opposite the gas works and the railway, they built their cathedral much, much quicker than... than well, that wouldn't be hard, really, Edmund, would it? Oh, no, me. except, you see, it, it was constantly remarked that the that Bishop Grimes, who whose idea of having a, a cathedral there, that he was able to get things moving in spite of the fact that most of his congregations were working-class Irish who weren't very well paid, but they raised enough money, and this was looked on by some people as rather a, um, a, a stain on the rich Anglicans um, who hadn't <laughs> raised enough money over all these years. Well, I think you make the point that only about 2,000 had contributed to the Cathedral Fund of the 60,000 Anglicans in the diocese. That was hardly yes. enthusiastic giving, was it? Oh, no, no, it... it uh, I mean, it, it's quite clear from um, from what church historians have discovered that uh, church attendance wasn't as good as had been hoped, and and this at a time when all the other churches in Christchurch were absolutely booming, particularly the Methodists and the Presbyterians. Congregationalists and um, and the Catholics, and so there was undoubtedly a, a sectarian rivalry there. But uh, the the fascinating thing for me is that Grimes, the first Catholic bishop, and Julius, the Anglican bishop, um, were great friends. And this was unusual at the time, anywhere in New Zealand or, for that matter, in Britain and America. The friendship between Grimes and Julius was very unusual in its time because sectarian uh, rivalry and dislike and bigotry ran very deep uh, throughout New Zealand society and in British society and in, in America also. And it had racial overtones um, because Catholics were predominantly Irish and they were not... Um, they were tended to be looked down on by your Scottish or particularly English part of the population... Uh, we've forgotten, I think, about that sort of thing. It became even more noticeable in Christchurch especially uh, during the 1920s and 30s. You, you write about the, and it was a long wait for this, 1st of November 1904 at 11 o'clock on a brilliantly sunny morning, 
40 years after the foundations were laid on that memorably rainy day that we mentioned before, the completed cathedral was consecrated by Archbishop Samuel Neville. Uh, it was filled, 1,500 seats were filled, about 500 more standing, and some quite lovely accounts in the press about it, um, really impressed by the building. How long was it, do you think, Edmund, before the cathedral was was really embraced and loved? I, I think it... I think it was fairly soon because, you see, the cathedral had something that no other church of any kind uh, in all New Zealand had, and that was a professional choir. And one can't overestimate the importance of the cathedral's choral foundation at that time, it was the only one in the south, uh, the only Anglican one in the southern hemisphere, and so people would flock to the cathedral on big occasions just to listen to the music. And regardless, uh, very often people would simply go out when the um, the sermon started. Uh, and the cathedral became the major musical performance centre for the entire city at a time when Christchurch's musical activity was absolutely humming. You know, there was so much music going on in Christchurch uh, with accompanying rivalries, of course, uh, that's always been the case in Christchurch. Musical, the musical world in Christchurch has always been tremendously active, but very, very um, divided into um, warring factions between the two big choral societies in particular, uh, as I uh, knew so well. I'm going to let uh, the the readers um, fill in the gaps between the start and the finish. Um, I mean, so much happens from the opening into where we are now, of course, including modifications to the cathedral itself, which I hadn't realised had been so many, some lesser, some um, more major. Uh, but you finish the book with renderings of the proposed build, and you you um, you know you investigate, and we know the high profile debates, long debates over whether the cathedral was going to be demolished and. Uh, rebuilt as a modern church, we know now, and work is under well, well underway on restoring the cathedral to as close as possible to what it was. Are you excited? I mean, the renderings are quite beautiful that you've included in here of the restored building. Are you excited about the future for the cathedral? Y yes, I, I am actually. Um, uh, you know, from from purely a, uh, a historian's point of view. Um, and having been involved in concerts and so on in my days as a singer um, at the cathedral, uh, as a and as a gathering place, I, I mean, as both um, John Bluck and, and Peter Beck and David Coles. Uh, pointed out to me many times um, 
they were encouraging people of all or no religious views to come into the cathedral either as tourists or to take part in whatever's going on there and to share it with the whole city, which, of course, the city has accepted ever since uh, before the First World War. Uh, and, uh, as you know, it, it's, it's a city symbol. So uh, I think it's all very exciting that um, it's survived, it's going to be improved, all kinds of things are going to be, um, you know, for example, the acoustics, I'm told, I'm assured, are going to be infinitely better. Yeah, you, weren't, you weren't a fan of the acoustics as a singer, were you, Edmund? Well, yes, you see, um, I, I must make the point that the cathedral's acoustics were no worse than an awful lot of cathedrals in Britain. Um now, I sang for 25 years. I sang oratorio performances around a large number of the English cathedrals. And there were some that were great favourites for me. I loved singing in um, Durham Cathedral. Uh, York Minster was wonderful. And, you know, I sang Messiahs for 22 successive years in Bath Abbey, which I just loved the acoustic there. But there were other places, other wonderful-looking cathedrals, um, like Salisbury and and several more, uh, that were not very pleasant to sing in. And the acoustics were... A problem in in Christchurch uh, right from the start, because when you have uh, the problem in cathedrals comes with the split choirs uh, sitting facing, you know, split in half, sitting facing one another in the choir stalls, and that can create problems of balance and all that kind of thing. But um, I think it's a very... I, I became totally converted to um, the idea of restoration and the improvements and the um, and a restoration of a very elegant building that um, is in such a prominent place Heart of the City, the story of Christchurch's controversial cathedral by Edmund Bowen, is published by Quentin Wilson Publishing.